Greetings. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 22 of the Legacy Drawing Board, the podcast journey experience that wants you to build a stronger, more meaningful legacy by embracing good design principles. I'm your host, Ron Fong. This podcast is built on three pillars. The first, the purpose. It's to fill the perpetual need for leadership that calls us to edify each other by building enduring relationships. The second, the mission, to introduce you into the world of design and have you see yourself and your world through the lens of legacy design and building with every thought, word, and deed. The vision is to increase the number of storytellers in the world and to increase the resonance of the stories from each storyteller. From, for the people that have been listening for some time now, I thank you for your support. And I'm always interested to know, by listening to these episodes, are you gaining something? Is it worth your time? Are you discovering your purpose? Are you able to make a stronger commitment to your mission? And are you gaining clarity in your vision? For today's episode, I interview Jonathan Fong, who is my youngest of three sons, He's the composer of the podcast Bumper Music. As a young artist, he's going to share his thoughts in terms of the process of scoring a film and a current creative environment. My guest is Jonathan Fong, composer of the podcast Opening Music. Jonathan, welcome to the Legacy Drawing Board. Well, thank you for having me. Full disclosure, Jonathan's my son, so please don't <laughs> count that against him. Jonathan, you graduated from... Uh, Cal State Northridge with a degree in commercial and media writing and currently working in terms of uh, scoring films. Is that correct? Yeah, I graduated from CSUN, uh, CSU Northridge's uh, commercial and media writing program in 2022. And um, right now, um, writing music for films is kind of my my moonlighting job. <laughs> I have a day job as an assistant at a post-production studio here in Los Angeles. Um, but yeah, I'm still working on independent and student films and just trying to write and build up my portfolio as much as I can. When you score a film, what's, can you uh, take us through the process? Do you see the film in its entirety or do you see it in terms of segments? Uh, it, well, like the answer is uh, like that of many great questions in life is that is it depends. So it depends on the director's and the editor's style and how they like to work. Um, with there's a project I'm working on right now where all I have is the script and they want me to start writing, you know, just read the script and kind of get a feel for the themes of the story they're trying to tell, the um, different aspects of the different characters. And they want me to, you know, start writing, just generating some ideas without even seeing any visuals. So there's that's, that's one approach that um, uh, some people like to take. Um, other times I'll get the film in its entirety before... I mean, at, th at the very start of when they bring me into the project. So it's they bring me in pretty late. Um, and then we go from there. But usually there's, uh, there's bound to be revisions and the film will change. They'll decide to take it in a different direction or cut this or that scene. So it's very, it's very fluid. Um, it's usually not a situation where you get the final cut of the film and then you write music to it and then you're done. You know, you'll write, it's, it's sort of a back and forth uh, dialogue of a process and that's I think that's where the, the interesting part of it is is you know compared to writing music 
for a concert hall or you know for your band or whatever as as fun and as great as that is the interesting thing about this kind of work is really that relationship building with the director and sort of figuring out that collaborative process when you talk about relationships there's the writer's vision for the film there's the director's vision for the film and then there's your vision for the score how do you bring those three creative minds together there's it's very easy to have too many cooks <laughs> in a project like a film that has so many different aspects um, to its production because you have you know the you have the visual aspects the sort of more technical visual aspects of the cinematography and you know the camera work and all these sorts of things the color grading and costume design set design you know there's the you know again the the writers the, the whoever wrote the script and then there's uh, the sound guys and there's an artistic aspect of course to you know doing the sound design and sound effects and stuff like that so it really helps if you have one or two people who are wh where the buck stops you know and that's of course usually the, the director so ideally or at least this is how i've seen it work most efficiently is where the director is the one who has whose baby the project kind of is um they're the one who is uh the the leader of the team and who's um okay everyone else has to get so that's that's very helpful in terms of um making sure that everyone doesn't get kind of lost in their own trying to go all these different directions and to have that that leadership figure who is providing a sort of uh guiding hand um to all the different um departments that are involved in making the film so the people who aren't the director basically you know the the uh, people in roles like mine like the composer or the cinematographer um, ultimately they're part of a team that is serving the picture and i think that's very important to realize is that you is that it's not necessarily your vision you know that you get to shape however you want but you have to realize that you're part of a team that's uh, that's sort of trying to come together to build this unified thing. When you talk about the vision or sorry, sorry, the purpose of the film, the purpose of the film, is it the audience that you have in mind? There's an interesting quote by uh, Bill Evans, who's one of my favorite jazz pianists ever, and as you know, who <laughs> your grandson is named after. And he said that- uh, It's um, Evan, not Bill. <laughs> yeah, all right. Um, he said that when you're playing music, the primary audience that you should always play music for is yourself. Mm -hmm. And it must be yourself because otherwise it's not a true artistic expression of your of your art. Um, so I think I think there is an element of truth to that in where the director, um, the director's vision should be sort of this is the story that I want to tell, that I want to express, not necessarily I mean, of course, you want to express it to an audience, but not necessarily considering what is the audience going to like or what, you know, or, or having considerations of, um, it, it's, it's, an, it's an expression of uh, sort of an inward vision, I guess, more than it is looking outward. In sports, they say the games that are officiated well is when you don't notice the officials at all. Obviously, a bad call, everyone knows it, or when the fish, official steals the show and tries a showboat. And again, time and time again, they said that was a great job 
officiating because we didn't even notice the, the umpires or the officials being part of the game. Right. Is that similar in terms of a score for music? That how do you blend it and it, it, it moves or works seamlessly with the visuals? Or is it one of those things where you do want the audience to notice the music? I think that uh, both are valid approaches sometimes. Um, and, and I think it has a lot to do with the director's, again, the director's vision and what they're trying to, the intention that they have and what in the way that they're designing their film. You know, the way that, um, the way that Spielberg uses music in his films is very different from the way that Quentin Tarantino uses music in his films, you know. And I don't think, and it's necessarily that one way is better than the other, but they're, they're definitely different. Um, so I think that it, it, as a general rule of thumb, it's you, the audience shouldn't be thinking about the music <laughs> when they're watching the movie. You know, I think um, the, the general idea is that you're trying to blend in as part of the experience so that, you know, I the same thing. Uh, with visuals, you know, the uh, you don't want the audience, you know, to notice the Starbucks cup on the Game of Thrones set, <laughs> you know. So, um, the in general, we we're trying to blend in and be a part of a seamless part of the whole experience of the film. The opening music, the theme. What are you trying to accomplish with that? I think back with Jaws, that beginning with the John Williams, and it really sets the tone. The ominous uh, of the shark, Star Wars, it's it has that feeling of a grand adventure. And you talk about Spielberg, same thing with Indiana Jones, that opening theme. Right. You, you know you're going to be in, in, in uh, getting ready for this great adventure. What's the purpose of that opening theme? Um, it should definitely, uh, like you said, set the tone for the rest of the film. Um, you, there's also just situations where you want to, uh, uh, subvert, you know, because you want the audience to be set up to think that the, your film is going to be a certain way when really you're going to pull out the rug from them, you know, in the second act or whatever. But the opening, when you have an opening theme like that in a movie, the, it's definitely going to very much color the audience's expectation of how the rest of the movie is going to go and what themes and um, setting you're setting up for them. When you talk about subverting, can you cite an example which uh, people could relate to immediately? Or Oh, gosh, let me see. That's all right. I should actually have prepared you for this interview. I <laughs> <laughs> have to think of that. Okay, that, that's yeah. fine. We, uh, we'll go back to it. But that's interesting. You, you talked about that when you said to, uh, pulling out the rug from, from the audience that you are going one direction, or at least you want the audience to think in a certain direction, and there is going to be something else later on, right. and to use incorporate music into that. Yes, yes, for sure. We've had multiple discussions about, I think, mainstream uh, cinema mm -hmm. and the way things are going. And my contention is that Hollywood is risk-adverse. Mm -hmm. That's why we see the Marvel uh, universe dominating the films because they know that it's a built-in money maker, not just at the box office, but obviously the, the, all the uh, associate merchandising. Right. At the same time, we do have new technology, new platforms for people to get content on uh, to the audiences. Mm -hmm. 
with social media and so forth. What has that done, those, those two tensions or two dynamics, what has that done for music and in terms of music in cinema? Um, well, uh, first of all, uh, I think uh, the risk-adverse nature of Hollywood's current kind of AAA, you know, big blockbuster uh, kind of productions has definitely affected, um, I mean, all aspects of the filmmaking process artistically. Um, like, as you said, there's, you know, I mean, you, you know, how many, summer after summer, how many very generic <laughs> kind of movies do we see across multiple genres, you know, where it's like, you know, it's like, okay, another, you know, Jason Statham movie or another Liam Neeson movie where he's, an ex-special forces operative who, you know, is trying to move away from the life and then he has to, he's, he's pulled back in because his family is threatened or something like that. You know, not even, there's already like four Taken movies, but then there's numerous movies with Liam Neeson <laughs> as the star that follow that same basic plot line. So clearly, you know, um, that there's obviously risk adverseness in terms of the writing and the scripts that um, are being uh, produced nowadays, but also in the in the music, um, it, it also affects the score. In that um, the the creative process for a lot of um, uh, blockbuster films nowadays is the composer will get brought onto the project, and then they'll be given what's called a temp score. And what that is is they basically is you get the picture. And the director or maybe a music editor puts existing music that was not written for that film over the film, the, the picture that you have. And then they show it to the composer and say, here, we want it to sound like this. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, there's th that's a valid method of, you know, of communicating how you want something done. But a lot of the times it turns out what happens in the end is basically what they're saying is we want this, but we don't want to get sued. So we want you to copy this music stylistically in terms of the flow of it. And, you know, this event happens here and this highlights that. We want you to copy it as much as possible without anyone getting sued or without having us having to license this. So, uh, you know, obviously that is a very... Um, that's very restrictive artistically because now suddenly you've put your composer into this box, you know, into this very narrow box of, uh, um, of uh, uh, these very narrow parameters of what they, what they can do and how they can express themselves. What you said about those blockbusters and having a template for the music, in light of the recent Hollywood writer strike, how does AI figure into the future of this is that going to just accelerate that process absolutely um i think that i mean we're already seeing um uh a lot of use of ai generated art in um in in terms of visuals that people are using for advertising and you know different uh, marketing materials um i think that it's probably inevitable that music for commercials is going to be entirely AI generated in the future unless you know um, unless someone wants something really specific for a really expensive commercial you know like a Super Bowl commercial or something like that I think most of your standard level kind of advertising 
uh, music-wise is going to be AI-generated. And I think that um, as in the technology has advanced more rapidly than the vast majority of people would have expected, and it's going to keep advancing. So there's definitely, I, in terms of, you know, the the investors and the studios are always going to want to save money because <laughs> they want to, you know, make as much money as possible. And uh, so if it gets to a point where audiences, you know, aren't noticing the difference, and I think we're very, very close, if not there already, then that's definitely going to be a situation in which um, human composers are going to be uh, replaced in the in the traditional role of composer that we think of it now. For the patron of arts who don't want that, they want the next generation, they want the creativity, originality. Are we at a catch-22 where the paying public, how they support this, they say, I would like something new, but there's nothing new coming from the studios. Therefore, I'll plunk down my $18, $20 to see whatever mm -hmm. because that's the only thing that's there. And then Hollywood says, oh, they'll, we keep turning out basically the same thing and they keep paying for it. Is there something that the discerning patron of arts can do to support artists who are seeking that avenue of creativity where it's not going to be this template but getting back to what we kind of think about in terms of, you know, artists and their creativity. Mm -hmm. Well, the the um, the tough thing is, uh, uh, I think, is distribution and finding a platform to find those artists on. Uh, not because it's hard for artists to get uh, their content out there. In fact, it's incredibly easy. But I think that comes with the the it's a two-edged sword because it's very um, there's a very low bar <laughs> for entry now for artists of all kinds. Whether you know film, if you want to make a film, you grab your iPhone, which have you know very good cameras nowadays, and you shoot your film and then you upload it on YouTube. But the platforms like YouTube and you know SoundCloud for musicians or you know Spotify or whatever are so very oversaturated now, and a lot of the the content that's being put out on there is uh you know not of uh, particularly high quality <laughs> in terms of production or you know in terms of the the sort of the thought process that went in uh, behind it so it's really it's it's sort of one of those things where you just kind of have to uh get out there and try to find art that you like and hope that <laughs> in, in, in some regards, you know, hope that the algorithm will point you in the right direction. You know, um, if you have another great place to look is, you know, whatever local artists um, happen to be in your area. And, um, but as far as supporting them, a lot of uh, artists on platforms like YouTube and Spotify and sort of younger artists, especially who have come up in the age of the Internet, they're turning to th towards things like Patreon, where you know people they have a uh, a base of, of uh, followers who you know give to them monthly, and it's not um, like often you'll the model you'll see is someone who does YouTube videos, for example. You know all their content, or at least the vast majority of their content, is still available for free via YouTube or whatever it is. But they'll have a system by which they say, hey, you know, if you like my videos consider signing up for my Patreon and giving me, you know, $5 a month. 
And so that's that's another method of um, supporting artists that I've seen gaining a lot of popularity in recent years. And it's 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 neat because it I mean, you still have the middleman of Patreon, but you're cutting out the middleman in terms of, you know, the theaters, um, the the studios and all these sort of traditional avenues that you would have to go to to get your um, content um, dispersed to a wide audience in the past. You mentioned algorithm and it I'm not really up to date in many of these platforms. I read where Spotify, I get the algorithm is based on the clicks and the clicks are dependent on the individual actually listening to the entire song, not just the first five or 10 seconds. Artists now understanding that and because they want to monetize, mm -hmm. they understand the rules of engagement. Therefore, if a song is more than three minutes, then the likelihood of someone listening for three minutes is much less than someone listening for something for two minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah. And they're going to have to catch them at the very beginning of the song. Right. That, right. that whatever you know, thing that, that makes the song the song, you're not going to be able to build up to it anymore because the, maybe the quote-unquote good stuff is not going to be till later. Sure. But the first 10 seconds, whatever, a person says, ah, I'm going to listen to something else. That way the algorithm now is driving content, and of course the artists want to be paid. They don't want to be starving artists. Right. Are we seeing again this homogenization of content, of, of music, because of the algorithms? I think that, well, I don't know how publicly available the uh, the act, the specific mechanics of how algorithms like Spotify's and YouTube, um, YouTube's work. Um, I don't know how available that information is. I mean, there could it could very. I mean, if that information is available, or you know, um, people have figured it out, then there's definitely, I'm sure, people out there who are saying, okay, you know, we've determined that the algorithm says that you know people need to listen for 13.2 seconds and so they make their they adjust the elements the of how their song is built to match those <laughs> parameters exactly you know um i think there's definitely i know on youtube there is a while ago there was a a big thing about how pe people had shifted to making their videos 10 minutes or longer to hit a certain um uh aspect of the uh, youtube algorithm in terms of how the advertising worked so yes, it's definitely affecting that, and it's definitely um, making things more homogenized. It's hard to to break out of that because again, you artists want to get paid, um, and they want to you know be as successful as they can monetarily. Um, but I think I also think that in the course uh, of the history of art, we've always seen that restrictions and constraints are a great breeding ground for creativity so there's always constraints that are going to that um, artists will have to deal with and even constraints that artists should put on themselves because um, it, you know the scariest thing to any composer as they say is a blank piece of paper you know um, so I think that there's a, a, the important thing for artists is to is to um, uh, is to kind of take these constraints and say, or these, yeah, these constraints and say, okay, I, you know, here's um, the 
factors that I have to deal with. Here's the limitations maybe that I have. Um, now, what can I do to make to express something worthwhile? Um, what you know? What can I pull out of my myself and my experiences to create something that's worthwhile and that's artistically uh, has artistic integrity within those uh, limits I'm faced with? When we talk about design, and to me at least, there's an overlap of design and composing because you're creating. Key elements of design is the principle of less is more. You know you're done with something, not when you are finished adding things to it, but you're, you're finished taking away things and so still can keep its essence. Mm. Is that a similar process in terms of music writing, composition, the notes, the things that you add to it where you say, I'm going to have to, I really want to strip this down to the essence where every note is is what it's needed and there's not this extra note or this extra anything. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I believe it was Debussy who's, uh, that quote is attributed to that he said, uh, music is the space in between the notes. So that comes back to that idea of, you know, it's not um, when you finish adding things, but it's when you finish, you know, taking away all the, the extraneous things, I guess you could say, out of your design. Um, even in the context of a, um, an orchestra, you know, 80, 100 musicians, where you have, you know, the string section, the woodwinds, the brass, you know, maybe percussionists, and you have all these different people who are, you know, playing, you know, a few different parts across these different sections. The general rule of thumb when it comes to writing music is you really don't want to have more than three ideas happening at the same time. And there's there's um, there's a concept that's often taught of foreground, background, and midground. You know, it's a very it's a very visual concept, when you um, but it's applied often to composition because I, I it's it's very easy to overwrite, and especially with music being so abstract, it's often you know difficult to even realize <laughs> like what you need to take away or you know what needs to be added. But in general, the the ear is really only used to hearing like three like really only three things happening at a time or three ideas and if you get more than that then it's it gets very hard for i mean you know just at a sort of neurological level for the brain to even process that and to identify different uh, things going on to follow what's supposed to be the focus so yes absolutely um, there's definitely um, that that mindset is and that process is definitely very important to music Many people would associate music or the artists who do it, especially ones who are successful, as being, they have a gift, they have a talent, they have mm. like this it. Whereas anyone who is successful or accomplished, it's because of hard work and sweat. Mm. What's the sweat equity or what's the grind that goes into writing music? I think, uh, one of the hardest parts is just writing. <laughs> I think um, the uh, there's such a uh, uh, a feeling. Uh, there's a, a feeling amongst uh, a lot of composers and artists, especially those who are sort of starting out or early in their careers, of 
of you know of things like imposter syndrome feeling like they're not good enough or what they're um, writing isn't worth sharing um, but I th you know in order to get better at something you have to do it and I think a lot of a big hurdle that a lot of younger and upcoming composers have to get over is the next p you know the piece that you're writing right now is not going to be your magnum opus probably and it's probably not even going to be very good and you're probably going to be ashamed of it a few years in the future um but it's important you just have to keep doing it you know you have to keep trying and you have to keep uh, uh, exploring and trying new ideas to just develop your your facilities you know it's the same process as practicing an instrument or you know learning to um, you know do any you know sort of manual you know skills you know woodworking or whatever you have to, it's that you know you have to put in that those repetitions and you have to get um, those uh, sort of that rote practice in which is kind of odd to think about when you're thinking about a creative um, uh, pursuit but it, I find that it's very similar to those two you know learning an instrument or exercising where you just have to keep pushing and keep doing it Jonathan, where can people find you on social media? Uh, you can find me on Instagram. That's the one I'm most active on at jonathan.fong.3. Um, you can also find me on Facebook at Jonathan Fong, and um, you'll find links to my YouTube channel and stuff like that. Well, Jonathan, thank you for the conversation. I always learn something more about music when we converse. And the check is in the mail for your uh, writing the podcast music. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's uh, it's an honor, and I can uh, check podcast guests off of my, uh, I can put that in my resume now. <laughs> thank you again. I don't want to add too many comments to Jonathan's perspectives at this time. I would like for you to think about what he said about the process and how to align vision and interests and how you could stay true to your voice, your vision, and your values. For the next episode... I'm going to talk about what I gained from it, the insights that I gained from his uh, perspectives, and see how we can construct a soundtrack for your legacy. If you're interested in exploring how to build your legacy through design, I invite you to visit my website, truenorthshepherding.com, and sign, for, sign up for a complimentary session on how we can work together. Until then, please give your legacy the time and attention it deserves, because when you do, we all benefit. <laughs>